Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com/fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com/fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Last time here on the Garden Basics podcast, we were talking about tomato troubleshooting with Don Shore. He's the owner of Redwood Barn Nursery in Davis, California. We talked about dealing with blossom end rot, sunburn issues, and problematic watering, which can cause your tomatoes to suffer. Today, it's Tomato Troubleshooter 2021, Part 2 with Don. We'll delve into the scary world of tomato hornworms and fruitworms, beautiful but deadly diseases such as late blight and wilts, and more troublesome tomato critters such as the leaf-footed stink bug. On a happier note, it's coming up to garlic harvest time. We have tips for getting the garlic out of the ground and into storage, and that takes a while. It's all on episode 110 of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, brought to you today by Smart Pots. And we'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. Last episode, you might recall, we were talking with Don Shore, owner of Redwood Barn Nursery in Davis, California. We were doing our tomato troubleshooting for 2021. And in the last episode, we talked about several common tomato problems, such as blossom end rot and problems with tomatoes that are caused by the sun or heat or your watering habits. Let's continue our conversation with Don Shore and find out about more tomato troubles that might be headed your way, but we'll have a cure for them. The tomato hornworm, or tobacco hornworm, depending upon uh, the number of stripes on its back, I think it's what it is, is uh, a very common occurrence. Uh, and it's it's not something to be fearful of. And uh, well, people are. It's interesting how people react when they see a four inch caterpillar with a horn on the back. Uh, some of them kind of jump up and scream and eat an amazing amount of foliage in a very short period of time. So it can do a lot of leaf damage and even might even it might even eat some fruit and wander off onto a nearby pepper or eggplant by accident. But mostly just eats foliage. And usually there's only one or two on the vine when you're dealing with them. Uh, so it's just a matter of. First, finding the droppings, looking straight up on the vine from where the droppings are, finding this thing looking at you and dispatching it by whatever method you prefer. Personally, I like to just kind of throw it about 20 feet and figure that takes care of the problem. Others like to snip them in half with their pruners, which is pretty gross, but it works. It turns into an amazing, beautiful, fascinating moth. So if there's a kid in the household and you've got something to put it in and you've got enough tomato foliage, <laughs> at least once you should probably put this thing in a giant jar, feed it a bunch of leaves every day until it finally pupates, and then let it turn into the amazing sphinx moth that it, that it becomes. But uh, really all they're doing is eating foliage. They're not a huge problem on the plant except for the amount of foliage any caterpillar has to eat in a given day. So you can generally find them. If you don't want to pick it by hand, hand. You can go get a BT spray, Bacillus thuringiensis, organic spray, very specific for caterpillars, doesn't harm beneficials or anything like that. And go ahead and spray the plant. The caterpillar feeds on it and it will be killed by that. So there is a spray option, but you're spraying a whole vine 
for one or two caterpillars, probably easier just to get some sharp-eyed helper to go out there and find the caterpillars and dispatch them directly. I'll trade you tomato hornworms. I'll take your leaf-eating tomato hornworms for uh, my fruit-eating tomato hornworms. Well, they do that, and there's also the tomato fruit worm, right. which is much more annoying because it burrows right into the fruit, and obviously that fruit is no longer useful. They're also harder to control. Uh, so there, you, unfortunately, you find the hole tunneled into the side of the green fruit. Just pick it off and dispose of it and um, keep an eye out. That's a case where the BT spray could be very helpful. If you're having an ongoing problem with tomato fruit worm, mm -hmm. different insect, different caterpillar, you might want to spray for that. And again, this is an organic, very safe spray. And don't forget, Mother Nature is trying to help you out here. Uh, the social wasps, paper wasps, and yeah. uh, others will bite chunks out of the tomato hornworm and take it back to the yeah. nest. And also, if you attract birds to your yard, they'll go after those critters as well. Yeah, mockingbirds and blue jays can be big helpers in the garden. They eat all kinds of bugs, and they'll go after caterpillars. They'll go after leaf-footed bugs and stink bugs, and they can actually give a surprising level of control on all of those problems. I've noticed, too, that I think there is some sort of Darwinian change going around in the bird world because the robins that are hanging out here around my blueberry bushes don't fly away when I come out now. They just stand their ground and give me the stink eye. Yeah, those are their blueberries, not yes, your blueberries. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> You're sharing your space with them. It's not really your property. <laughs> All right. Now, there are ongoing issues with tomatoes that can be weather-related, like yeah. uh, late blight, uh, black mold, bacterial speck. Uh, not much you can do about the weather. Well, those are all diseases, and they're on the plant, I hate to say this, probably when you got it. That's uh, the simple thing. The uh, simplest preventive on this is to inspect plants at the time you either buy them or accept them from your friend or, or get them at the, you know, from that guy down the street who's selling them for 50 cents. Look at the leaves. Look for spots on the leaves. Um, I'm not real deeply concerned in our arid climate about uh, early blight or bacterial speck. You can simply pick those leaves off and dispose of them as we get into periods of 10, 20 percent humidity, which is pretty much every day here in the summer. Those will go away. Late blight can be problematic, especially for listeners in rainy summer climates. It can be horrific. It can really spread rapidly. So carefully inspect the plants when you buy them. Look for those spots on the leaves. And I strongly suggest you go online and look for illustrations of late blight versus early blight and bacterial speck. Cornell, Rutgers universities have some great illustrations you can find online. Late blight can spread rapidly into the vein of the leaf, into the petiole of the leaf, and all the way into the main stem. And it causes a dieback that is reminiscent of fire blight on apples. I mean, you get a sudden dieback of leaves or even whole shoots on the plant. In our climate, it rarely progresses much past a few leaves and, and a, maybe a side branch. I highly recommend you prune it out at that point, put that pruning into a bag, dispose of it. Generally, the problem goes away because it doesn't rain here in the summer. If we had overhead watering or rain uh, and very high humidity, it could spread very rapidly. And this has happened in the mid-Atlantic and upper Midwest parts of the country where they've had years where late blight is a problem in the supply chain. He says subtly yes. in the supply chain <laughs> and people took home plants that had late blight on them. And then they had a rainy June or mm -hmm. even into July. And it spreads very rapidly down the whole bed of plants. In that situation, you're going to need a fungicide. You're going to probably need to go talk to your local garden center. They may recommend you rotate a couple of different fungicides because these can be very problematic. In our area, if you prune it out and here's the other key thing, spread your plants far enough apart 
three, four, five feet apart. My tomatoes are six feet apart. So that there's good air movement, good sunlight on them. Prune out the affected portion. That's usually the end of it for us. And that would probably help a lot in those areas where late blight can be very problematic. Air movement and sunlight are the enemies of disease. Oh, but let's blame the gardener for letting their sprinklers hit the tomatoes as well. Well, yeah, that can be a factor. Yeah, you shouldn't be sprinkler irrigating tomatoes in general. Yeah. I mean, I wash off tomato plants for other reasons, but I do it on a day that I know the humidity is going to drop down, as it does here, to let's say 10 to 20% in the middle of the afternoon. So if you're in an area that's muggy, uh, you don't want to be overhead watering at all. Right. And rinsing plants off can make it splash from plant to plant very rapidly. Space them out. Get your plants more spaced out. Yeah, and if you are hand-watering your tomato plants, uh, you may want to do it lower to the ground instead of uh, yeah. spraying over the top of their heads. Although, if you live in a non-humid area, you might be able to get away with that uh, if you water early in the day to allow the plant to dry off. But if you water late, uh, you're going to have things like late blight, black mold, bacterial speck. At FarmerFred.com, as well as at the Farmer Fred Ramp blog page, you can find a whole list of these tomato troubleshooters that we are talking about along with uh, the symptoms that you will see, uh, like on the leaves we've been talking about, as far as with the the blights or bacterial speck. With bacterial speck, uh, the leaf spots are near the edge of the leaf. They're dark brown with a yellow ring. With late blight, the halo effect, right. The the late blight, a beautiful purple-brown area on the leaves. I mean, it's just a beautiful shade of purple, but that's a sign of late blight. And it can move very rapidly. That's the other thing about that one. It can move rapidly and cause a lot of dieback. I know that commercially, uh, they frequently spray with copper as a preventative early in the season. There are organic versions of copper spray that you can find if that's your preference. That's a preventative. And if you've had a problem with it in the past, it might be worth considering. In arid climates, it's not generally an issue. So... We're glad to have SmartPots on board supporting the Garden Basics podcast. SmartPots are the original award-winning fabric planter. They're sold worldwide. SmartPots are proudly made 100% in the USA. I'm pretty picky about who I allow to advertise on this program. My criteria, though, is, is pretty simple. It has to be a product I like, a product I use, a product I would buy again. And Smart Pots clicks all those boxes. They're durable, they're reusable. Smart Pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value stores nationwide. To find a store near you, visit smartpots.com slash Fred. It's Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred for more info and that special Farmer Fred discount on your next Smart Pot purchase. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. Let's get back to our conversation with Don Shore of Redwood Barn Nursery in Davis, California. We're doing tomato troubleshooting. This is the second of two parts. And there is one thing every tomato gardener can do to lessen the threat of spreading diseases year after year after year among your tomatoes. You used a word a few minutes ago that we should reemphasize. You used the word rotate, and I think it's very important not to plant your tomato plants in the same spot year after year, especially if yeah. you've had problems with root knot nematodes or fusarium wilt or verticillium wilt. Yeah, the three, those are the big three right there. They're soil-borne problems. Nematodes are, are not, you know, disease. The other two are diseases. And um, the general recommendation is not just tomatoes to rotate, but anything that's related to tomatoes. So that includes 
potatoes, peppers, eggplant, tomatillos, Aunt Molly's ground cherry, um, all of those things that are in the nightshade family should be rotated out of a bed. Now, this is challenging for a lot of people. You don't have a lot of space in your backyard. If you're at the stage of planning a yard, I would suggest having three beds for vegetables. That makes it easy. Mm. So one of them is for the nightshade family members, and then you just rotate to the next one to the next one. It's standard in farming to rotate uh, tomatoes with beans and corn, things like that. Uh, just putting in something that's not a host for those diseases and those pests. Uh, and that's the, the reason for that is because those problems, when you get them, are very difficult to manage. Managing a problem in the soil that has built up to the numbers that are doing injury like the root knot nematode, very, very challenging. Yes, there's a product on the market. It's called nematode control. It's a drench. It's not cheap. So probably better to prevent the problem if you can possibly do it just by how you rotate your crops. Exactly. Not all nematodes are bad. You can uh, find no. beneficial nematodes that can control the root knot nematodes. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a and this soil drench that's derived from uh, a saponin based material. It's an organic material, but read the label. It's actually got a warning label. So it'd be better if you can just prevent the problem from the start by where you plant and how you, you know, it, it, as I say, most people's backyards, they have one garden bed for the vegetables and it's not the easiest thing to remember. So look for that VFN label on the hybrid tomato varieties. Uh, and, you know, the heirlooms don't have this. The VFN stands for verticillium, fusarium, and nematode resistance. And uh, that's something that's been bred into many of the hybrid tomatoes. I should also mention, we we're talking about late blight. There are new varieties uh, that are resistant to late blight. So if you're in an area where late blight is a problem, as you're looking through the seed catalog, that's a common comment. Now, that's a complicated subject, to put it mildly, but it would be another tool in your, your tool chest in terms of dealing with, with these problems in a region where that can be an issue. Another great reason to plant hybrid tomatoes. Look for those letters V, F, N, and let's not forget T and A. That that would be uh, tobacco, mosaic virus, and uh, yes. alternaria. Let, there are other problems that might be attacking your tomatoes this summer that you may see on your other plants too, like white flies, aphids, powdery mildew, and uh, mm -hmm. you know a, a lot of this has to do with people loving their tomato plants and other plants to death with too much nitrogen fertilizer. That stresses the plant. It puts out weak growth that's very attractive to those pests I just mentioned. Yeah, lush growth certainly encourages white flies. I'll tell you, the white flies are pretty easy to manage for me. Uh, I've found that uh, the spacing, the wider spacing, so I don't get this big overgrown mass of tomato foliage has made a big difference. This is an interesting one. Dragonflies love to eat white flies. Ooh, okay. They're entomophagous. That's today's vocabulary word, entomophagous. They eat other insects. And uh, they can do a very good job of keeping white flies under control. In my own garden center, white flies are managed by very vigorous rinsing of the plants early in the day, three to five days in a row, uh, stressing the undersides of the leaves where the larvae are, are, need to be blasted off the leaf. And we find that we get very good control that way. We do it early in the day, so the foliage has a chance to dry off by the end of the day. And if we had a problem that was continuing beyond that, we would probably move up to neem oil very carefully, not using it on a hot day or even a light summer oil. But we've generally not had to do that as long as we are, are we monitor carefully. We monitor plants, not just the tomato plants, but plants nearby that are uh, nesting sites and resting sites for white flies. 
and we vigorously rinse those as well. You will find over time, if you garden in the same place and you keep planting flowering things amongst your tomatoes and herb plants nearby, and you have some ornamental grasses over there on the other side of the garden, and you have some shrubs that have flowers at different times, beneficial insect populations will increase steadily and consistently. And over time, you'll get to the point where you see aphids, you see white flies, and they kind of magically go away. And that's because you've encouraged the beneficial insects to feed on them. But in order to do that, your garden has to be something more than a, a desert for them. It has to have places for them to hide and multiply and increase. And you have to reduce your use of insecticides. And it's also rather important in the case of some, like the dragonflies, to have a water source nearby. So something that can, all this diversity in your garden is, you know, it's fundamental to getting the populations of beneficials, not just the insects that come in and help control, but birds, you know, mockingbirds, blue jays, things that come in and eat the bigger bugs. Generally speaking, once you have a really active garden that way, your pest problems will diminish. They'll probably take care of themselves. Whenever I see someone bring in a sample of aphids to my garden center, I'll take them out and I'll show them, look, some of these are already parasitized. You can tell they're, they're bloated, they're tan, they're not moving. So your problem is solving itself. Rather than buying a pesticide, now let's let nature run its course. Many farmers here in California are now lining their crops with alyssum because that attracts a whole host of beneficial insects oh, yeah. that do just exactly what you're describing. We'll have a, a link on today's show notes about plants that attract beneficial insects because uh, those can take your uh, insecticide spray bills down to nothing if you've attacked yeah, enough. Uh, personally, I have actually never sprayed a tomato plant with a pesticide here. Never? There are people listening. Never? Never. There are people listening who cannot get through a season, rainier climates in particular, without spraying because their crops would be ruined. So we're in an area where it, uh, we, we can get to the point where it's not necessary at all. I've never had to spray a tomato plant for, with a pesticide in Sacramento Valley. He said bragging okay fine i think we're just lucky honestly <laughs> yeah all right now there is a, one other thing that may cause people worry and when they start seeing seeing oily brown leaves especially near the base of the tomato plant that's usually a sign of uh, tomato russet mites yeah, every summer it seems like I get one or two customers that have that. I had it happen on my vines one time way back when, before I, you know, when I first was gardening here. And they sort of dry up from the ground up. It, it's really hard to tell because it takes a, a 40 power hand lens to see this particular type of mite. And they're tough to control, by the way. Uh, it happened to my crop one year um, and it's never happened since. And this is, you know, that's the way it seems to work. It, it is a mite. It's a very tiny one. And it comes from the ground level and it moves up the plant, gradually increasing. And by about the 1st of August, your plant can be about half dead from this. It's a tough one to control. Vigorous rinsing with water probably helps to some degree. Mites in general are very challenging to control. You generally look for a suffocating agent like a thin oil or something like that. But I've got to always mention when I say anything about an oil, uh, high temperatures can cause leaf burn when you spray an oil. So you've got to, you know, if you've got a period of cooler weather, uh, that might be a fine time to go out and spray. But in our normal, you know, the average summer temperature of 93 degrees here, in July and August, that's our average high temperature in this area, that'll burn plants. So you've got to spray when we're in our cooler spells of that average. Uh, and it can be a challenging one. One main thing on the russet mite is at the end of the season, everything needs to go away. All of the foliage, all mm -hmm. of the plant, all that needs to be taken away, not to your compost pile. In this particular instance, I would send it out to the landfill. Yeah, exactly. Uh, clean up uh, at the end of every season and also during the season, too, when you see fallen fruit, uh, fallen leaves, yep. uh, rake them up, 
put them in the green waste. Uh, don't try composting them. There are a couple of other cosmetic tomato problems, such as cat facing or maybe the concentric yeah. circles you see near the stem. I, I wouldn't worry about those. Those are usually watering related. They're, they're, a plant was just inadequately watered in a period of increasing temperature. Again, if you can get to the point where you're deep irrigating and your soil retains moisture, those of you with raised planters need to work to get the soil to retain moisture. There's a bunch of things you can do. Uh, but when you do water, water deep enough, a tomato plant needs several gallons of water when you irrigate it. And you'll find that if your soil holds moisture pretty well, uh, you tend to have less of a problem with that. But again, those are things that can just be cut out and uh, the rest of the fruit is usable. Is there anything we left out? Stink bugs okay, and leaf-footed bugs. And those guys show up and they're, they're scary looking, particularly the leaf-footed bug, which is an increasing pest in many parts of California. I don't know how widespread it is in other parts of the country. And it pokes its little proboscis into the fruit and makes a little spot that you would only notice if you're looking for it. So in general, they don't do a lot of damage to fruit. They do this to peaches as well, any kind of soft fruit. They're, they're, they're a general feeder. Usually, people find some here, some there. It's not a huge problem. Sometimes they go out and they'll find 50 on one fruit, which is really gross. And in that case, you have an opportunity to go get a bucket, put some soapy water in it, shake them into the bucket, problem solved yeah leaf-footed bugs it turns out are rather popular throughout the sun belt there was even a florida leaf-footed bug charming <laughs> yes they, they have their own name and well, we have three or four species in california and uh, they're they're very recognizable but the only issue is that we find them in all different stages we find the nymphs we find the adults and the nymphs look rather different from the adults and they do like all other stink bugs two aspects one they stink when you squish them two they are a congregating type of insect which means you tend to find them in groups particularly on your pomegranate tree they really mm-hmm. like pomegranates so if you're looking for the the source of them on your tomato Look at your nearby pomegranate, the developing fruit. You may find 30 or 40 on a single fruit. And they don't really do much damage to the pomegranate. They do a little bit. Uh, you, can, you can go after them with a handheld vacuum cleaner or just tap them off into a bucket full of soapy water. There you go. I was just looking here about uh, how widespread the leaf-footed bug is. It really does uh, uh, love the Sun Belt and even uh, slightly yeah. cooler places. Uh, the uh, leaf-footed bug has been reported as far north as Long Island, New York, and ranges mm. south to Florida, west to Iowa and Kansas, southwest through Texas to California, including Lower California, and into Mexico, Guatemala, and Costa Rica. And it is definitely an increasing pest in many parts of California, and I think that may be related to the cropping patterns in, in ag in our area. It's a pest of almonds. You know, we've had tens of thousands of acres of almond trees planted over the last 30 years here in the Sacramento Valley. And guess what? I have to identify leaf-footed bugs several times a week, whereas 20 years ago it might be three or four times during the course of the whole summer. They are a stink bug, and there are other stink bugs that are problematic in other areas, and one that's new to our area. And generally speaking, those poke their proboscis into things and cause a little discolored area on the fruit. From a home garden standpoint, they're not a huge problem, typically. Obviously, farmers can't have those kind of cosmetic problems on their fruit. Now, what is it Mother Nature used to say? Oh, yeah, Mother Nature (laughs) abhors a monoculture. I think the nature abhors a vacuum is the phrase you're looking oh, for. Well, <laughs> but a vacuum can be a very handy yes, tool in this case. Yes. <laughs> yes. Now, remember, if you're using a vacuum to pick up uh, stink bugs, that vacuum's going to stink. So leave it yes. outside. Put it in a plastic bag when you're done with it to make sure they don't just crawl right back out of the vacuum, too. Don Shore, Redwood Barn Nursery, Davis, California. Thanks for uh, troubleshooting our tomatoes for us. 
Great to be here. Thanks, Fred. Don mentioned earlier about his list of his favorite tomato varieties to grow. You can find that list at his website, redwoodbarn.com. Redwoodbarn.com. You can also find out about his radio show and podcast at redwoodbarn.com as well. Mid to late June, early July, a good time to be harvesting garlic if you planted it. And that's true throughout most of the country. Now, here in Northern California, where 90% of all commercial garlic is grown, generally the California early and California late varieties do quite well here, and it's harvest time for them. For cold climates, there are other varieties that do better than California early or California late. In fact, according to the University of Minnesota, if you plant California varieties of garlic uh, in cold climates, they will develop a hot flavor. Well, if you like hot garlic, go ahead. So for colder climates, you may want to choose some varieties that do well in your area. And by the way, all of these do well in California as well, such as hardneck garlic, the rocambole, the purple stripe, and the porcelain, or softneck types like artichoke and silver skin. These varieties typically produce more cloves, and by the way, with softneck types, they're easy to braid. Softneck varieties don't grow a flowering stalk like the hardneck types, but the climate, though, can change that quality. A variety that is softneck in one location can form a flowering stalk in a different location. Now, you might just dig up a couple of uh, bulbs and, and see what they look like. Harvesting too early will result in small bulbs. Harvesting too late will result in cloves popping out of the bulbs. And again, harvest garlic between late June and late July. Begin harvesting when the lower leaves turn brown and when half or slightly more than half of the upper leaves remain green. That's a good rule of thumb. Alternatively, you can pull a few bulbs, cut them in half. If the cloves fill the skins, then the bulbs are ready to harvest. Now, one of the things you don't want to do is dig them up with a trowel. If you have them in tight quarters, you may want to dig down with your fingers to get the bulb without damaging the bulb. That's the problem with a trowel. It could slice through the bulb if you got too close to it. So either use your fingers or back off a few inches and get underneath the bulb with a spading fork and bring it up that way. Don't remove the shoots after you've pulled them out of the ground. You need for them to cure. Do knock off any large clumps of soil you might find, and then put the plants in a warm, dry, airy place for three to four weeks to cure. Here in California, maybe two to three weeks because it is warmer here. And by the way, here in California, after you've dug up those bulbs, place them in the shade in a tray so you can get some air circulation in the bottom. And you can place them outside in the shade because in California, that's a warm, dry, airy place. In colder climates, where there is the chance of rain, you may want to just place them indoors in your root cellar. By the way, when I'm elected mayor of suburbia, all homes will come with root cellars. By putting those plants in a warm, dry, airy place for a few weeks, that'll help dry the sheaths that surround the bulbs as well as the shoots and roots. So after that period of a few weeks, cut the shoots one half to one inch above the bulbs and you can trim the roots off closer to the bulb base. Save garlic cloves from one crop to the next. Keep the biggest ones for planting the following year. Enjoy the rest. And again, keep them in a cool, dry place. I'm telling you, vote for me for mayor and you'll get a root cellar. Note that, uh, by the way, elephant garlic is a type of leek, not a true garlic. 
Finding accurate information about growing garlic can be rather difficult. One good online source is a catalog company called Fillery Farm. They specialize in garlic. They have a lot of good garlic tips in their catalog and online at filleryfarm.com. We'll have a link to them in the show notes today. Two great books on the subject, Growing Great Garlic by Ron Engeland and The Complete Book of Garlic by Ted Jordan Meredith. And we'll have links to those books in today's show notes as well. Another good online source is the University of Minnesota. Yes, we will have a link there too. It's garlic harvest time. Let's get to it. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday and is brought to you by Smart Pots. It's available just about anywhere, and that includes Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And for Northern California gardeners, it's the Green Acres Garden Podcast with Farmer Fred. It's available also wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. And thanks for listening.